Recently I came across an article in the newspaper and the headline said, Human Beings Prone to Walk in Circles. And it was a, a, about a research project that had been undertaken where groups of people were taken and dropped into various wilderness locations and asked to find their way out. And it was discovered that unless people were given a map and a compass, that they just tended to walk in circles and end up at the very same place that they'd started from. And somehow I wasn't really terribly surprised by the results of this research. And given the fact how much we see in ourselves walking in very familiar circles in our own minds, walking in familiar circles of thinking, walking in familiar circles of reactivity, I'm wondering how many times in your your sittings you're walking, when you look at your mind, you suddenly have that thought, I've really been here before. You know, and I know this one. In fact, you know, much of that territory of our minds is, is actually all too familiar to us. Now, in the Buddhist tradition, the Buddha often referred to this tendency to walk in these familiar circles as samsara. In fact, translated from the Pali, uh, from the Tibetan, uh, the Tibetan word for samsara literally translates as walking in circles. Now, it was in the acknowledgement of that tendency of the mind to walk in these familiar circles, that the Buddha placed this sense of a path into the midst of that. And the path, of course, is really not about walking in circles. The path is about giving the tools like the map and the compass provided through the practice, provided through the teaching, provided through insight to find the way out of these circles And the path has, of course, a beginning. It has a beginning. And the beginning is very often that acknowledgement of these kind of repetitive uh, movements of the mind and heart. It is what the Buddha called dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness, the unsatisfactoriness of feeling uh, kind of bound or imprisoned by this familiar territory which offers little sense of ease or freedom or understanding. And the path, of course, has a direction and a fruition. And the direction is to use the tools to find the way out of the circles. The fruition is, of course, the liberation of the heart from all everything that binds it to distress, to anxiety, to fear. Very much in this teaching, the Buddha really acknowledges the power of the mind and the need to understand our minds. And acknowledging, as you all know, that in this teaching, mind and heart are words that are used interchangeably. 
So we're really concerned with understanding our hearts, understanding our minds, understanding what gets us into trouble, struggle, fear, resistance, and actually what leads us out of that. And I think that question of the, that that question of what leads to suffering and what leads to the end of suffering is a question of some real immediacy. It's not about, you know, a great abstract theory or a great abstract concept, but very much moment to moment to really be attuned inwardly in the day to all the moments when there's that sense of contractedness or struggle or repetition, to be able to really look at those moments very fearlessly, without judgment, without blame, to see the conditions from which that struggle or fear or contractedness arises, and to understand really the conditions in that moment that leads to the end of struggle. And certainly one of those primary conditions is is insight. Certainly we develop calmness, we develop serenity, we develop and nurture qualities of stillness. But those qualities of stillness and calmness are what allows us to see more clearly they are the conditions that are conducive to understanding. Now, the Buddha, in in placing this emphasis upon the mind, upon the heart, I think it really was that, that real understanding of how the mind is the forerunner of all things. How the heart is the forerunner of all things. The confused mind is often the forerunner of confused behavior, reacti- reactivity. The anxious mind produces its own stream of thinking and action aligned with that state of mind, just as the mind of kindness, the mind of spaciousness, the mind of calmness produces and gives birth to its own series of acts, responses, relationships. The Buddha used two very simple formulas that I think are really worth taking to heart. The first of those formulas is what we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. This is so important for us to understand moment to moment, that what we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. If there is dwelling upon anger or anxiety or uh, craving, it does indeed become the shape of our mind. And we also see how the shape of our mind really in truth does become the shape of our world. Because the shape of our mind is distorting and shading and coloring really how we see the world. So the shape of our mind becomes the shape of our world. Equally, if we dwell through cultivating kindness, compassion, spaciousness, and ease, this also becomes the shape of our mind, the shape of our heart, changing our perceptions and changing our sense of the world in that moment. So that's the first of the formulas that what we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. And I think in this formula, 
or this reflection or contemplation. It really is an encouragement to be aware of what we are feeding moment to moment. Because we see so clearly that there's no mental state that has an independence of existence. You know, there's no, you know, anger, fear, anxiety don't have independence of existence. They rely upon being fed. Similarly, calmness, spaciousness, you know, ease, kindness are not just lucky accidents that we happen to stumble upon occasionally. They are also born of what we are feeding in the moment. So within this simple formula of what we dwell upon becomes a shape of our mind, it becomes a sort of map of practice in a way becomes a map of how we are in the day to be that mindful of what is being fed moment to moment knowing with some certainty that what is being fed will indeed grow the second formula that the Buddha put forward I think in this contemplation of the mind which I, I, I feel is very very important is he said, the mind that obsesses becomes agitated, and the mind that is agitated is far from freedom. He said, the mind that does not obsess does not become agitated, and the mind that is not agitated is near to freedom. Bearing in mind, you know, in our culture, obsession is kind of like a big charged word. You know, we imagine these gripping, painful, excruciating moments of obsessing. But the Buddha used the word obsession in a slightly more expansive way, you know, which is about like walking the same circle more than once, you know, holding the same stream of thoughts more than once. But it's so important to see the place that obsession also has in creating agitation and the place that non-obsession has in cultivating calmness and spaciousness. Now, obsession is very much about these circles of repetitive, habitual thinking, reacting. And what you've probably noticed is that when you're in those circles of habitual dwelling, we might say, how the circle gets tighter and tighter each time you walk around it. You know, if you have a thought about the past, you know, someone who's offended you or injured you, every time you walk around that circle of thinking, it just gets a little bit tighter and more contracted. If you have a thought about, you know, uh, you know, someone, maybe there's, you know, some innocent soul here who happens to annoy you, how you notice that every time you kind of walk that circle of annoyance, it becomes more and more credible and true. And it gets tighter and tighter and more contracted. And it starts to get very agitated. Now, I think it's really, it's really helpful to notice that we really can obsess about anything at all. You know, obsession, the tendency towards obsession really has no conscience. You know, we can obsess about the food, we can obsess about the weather, we can obsess about other people, and we can certainly do a whole lot of obsessing about ourselves. You know, how I'm doing, if I'm getting somewhere, my faults, my imperfections, what shouldn't be happening. And just notice the tightening, the tightening effect 
of that obsession, how it feels really quite trapped. Now, in obsession, it is really important to know what is fueling it. Because in, when there is obsession, you know, and I use this word in a very wide way, it, it is this kind of waterfall of thinking, these sort of torrents of thinking. But something is really holding that in place. Something is really feeding that. And it's certainly the underlying emotional patterns, the underlying mental states. But there's a circle here that happens all on its own. You know, how a mental state creates thoughts, when those thoughts in turn strengthen the mental state. You know, you can see if you start with just a little bit of irritation and you start to have more and more irritated thoughts, how those thoughts in themselves strengthen this feeling of irritation, which in in turn creates more agitation, more obsession. And of course, there's this other piece that really gets fed in here, which is the piece of self view, the piece of self-view, how that piece of I am irritated, I am anxious, I am this, I am the other, how that piece of self-view plays its own part, its own role in kind of tightening these circles of thinking. Now, this kind of tendency to obsess in this teaching is, you know, has this wonderful word, word, papancha, which is, you know, I, I just think it's the most delightful of all Pali words, papancha. And, uh, and if there's any word we should ever remember in Pali, it's, it's this one. Because papancha is really describing this proliferation of thinking just what I've been talking about, that born of mental states, that colors and distorts our capacity to see things the way they are, the way they actually are. And what we see in this practice, how this practice is really directed over and over again to seeing things the way they actually are, to liberate the mind from confusion and distortion, And in a way, the confusion and distortion of our our mental states, reactions, but also to liberate the world, to liberate the moment from confusion and distortion. Now, it's very, I think it is very crucial that in our relationship to the mind, that it is a relationship not of judgment or dismissiveness or blame or rejection, but that it really is a relationship of kindness, interest, curiosity. You know, and the, the Buddha so much put this quality of, of affectionate mindfulness and investigation. These two together, really at the heart of the path of awakening. Affectionate mindfulness and investigation. To embrace the moment, to embrace whatever is happening, the genuine sense of interest and curiosity. What is this? You know that that attitude of openness, of receptivity, stepping out of that field of you know this has to go away, or this shouldn't be happening, or something else should be happening. Just that affectionate mindfulness of what is this? That attitude of kindness, that attitude of calmness, of embracing, of inclusiveness, is absolutely pivotal. 
There is nothing that is transformed by blame. There is nothing that is transformed by judgment or by dismissiveness or by rejection. Things are only transformed by relatedness, by a sense of relationship, of wise relationship, of kindness and inclusivity. It's, it's so easy to forget this. You know, it's one of the kind of like primer lessons of meditation practice, and yet it is so easy to forget it. And we forget it because we have this little circle that is often operating in our minds and hearts of aversion and ill will. We can see how we can sometimes almost feel to be hardwired to resist rather than understand. And we are really changing that kind of primary pattern, not resisting, dwelling in that willingness to understand the moment. Now, as we talk about obsession, it's about going underneath the stories all the time. Isn't this what we're doing in practice? We're going underneath the stories, underneath the stories, underneath the stories to really look at the fuel, to really look at the kind of the, the, the energy that is creating this state of mind that feels self-existence self-existent. Now, you know, it's not like, you know, people can sometimes feel like they have so many underlying patterns or so many underlying tendencies. In truth, we don't. We have a very small collection. And the other thing that's important to recognize is that these are very universal. You know, this small collection of underlying tendencies is not just mine. It is very universal. It is the fabric of delusion. It's the fabric of ignorance. It's not that you're the owner of this small collection of tendencies. These are the patterns of, of, of mind that are really the kind of outflows or the fruits of delusion. Now, one of these patterns of mind, and I'm sure you know we will talk about this over and over again, but I make no apology for it because the Buddha talked about this five million times. In craving as an underlying tendency... You know, it feels like a harsh word, doesn't it? Craving, tanha in Pali, the wanting, the unanswerable sense of wanting. Unanswerable. It's very good to acknowledge that. Craving is unanswerable. But it's a very, very powerful tendency. And again, it's not particularly personal. It is a fabric of delusion. But think about how it operates, you know. Every time we depart from the moment, what is moving us? It's one of these tendencies. It's really good to notice that. And a big one is craving. Fantasy, daydreams, often feels a lot more satisfying than what's actually happening, doesn't it? You know, what's actually happening can feel kind of a little dull, a little neutral, you know, not particularly interesting. Craving feels much more attractive. You know, fantasy, daydream feels like much more satisfying. It's like having a big meal, you know, offered in the midst of a sort of dry patch of eating. But look at what is moving our thinking. Look at what is moving the the tendency to obsess, to dwell. 
great fantasizing about lunch, fantasizing about other people. It's really, again, it doesn't matter. A new experience, a better sitting, a better walking, a better mental state, you know, a better personality, a different body, you know, a different mind. Actually, the menu is completely endless. It's completely endless. But notice what happens when that craving is moving. It's a big storyteller. It's a big storyteller. Creates a lot of thinking, uh, agitated thinking. It's agitated because it's about what's not here. Craving is not about what's here. It's always about what is not here. So it's agitated. Of course, if we're not mindful, that agitated thinking turns into agitated behavior. You know, if you found yourself haunting the notice board for the 50th time in a day, you know, you might notice, I think there's a little craving going on here. You know, there's a little craving going on here, but it's the hungriness. It's the absolute hungriness. Um, but it, the Buddha talked about craving not as a fault. The Buddha talked about understanding craving as the doorway to liberation. Really understanding craving as a doorway to liberation. Because if we really look at that, that movement of craving, the departure from the moment, the sense of unanswerable want, we see really how much delusion is locked into it. Because there is truly the belief in craving that if I just had this, just got this, just changed this, I would be happy. So there is this kind of projection of intrinsic power into objects, people's things to make us happy. Now, what did the Buddha really teach is the essence of this teaching, that the source of liberating happiness, the source of genuine happiness, does not lie in the things of the world. It lies in our own hearts. There is something, I think, about restraining craving, because it makes so many projects, you know. It just makes so many projects. And, you know, in meditation centers where there's not really that much to do, you know, the projects can get really ridiculous. But it does make a lot of projects, and there's something about restraining it, restraining it. Sometimes the projects are just in the mind. You know, the wonderful reunions I have after a retreat, you know, how I'm going to plan that, what I need to do. But just to restrain it, the cultivation of contentment in the midst of craving, I think is one of the greatest of all arts. It is one of the greatest of all arts, the cultivation of contentment and the willingness to embrace, actually to really see the painfulness of being locked in craving. It's really painful. Because it, it's so much the sense of there, this moment is simply not enough. This moment is simply not enough, that I am not enough. What is happening is not enough. It's truly a painful state. And to cultivate contentment in the midst of craving, I think, is a courageous act. It's a courageous act because it is really stepping outside of those the, that territory of what we know. It's stepping outside of the territory of, of agitation. To be still in the face of craving is courageous. Now, the, that underlying tendency, I'm just going to talk about like, like five little underlying tendencies here. 
The, the one that is really married to craving is aversion. These two are like, uh, you know, like inseparable twins, craving and aversion. They can't, you know, because we crave something because we don't like what's here. You know, craving doesn't arise out of nowhere. Craving already arises out of sense of aversion. We don't like what is here. We are discontented with what is here. That aversion often stimulates the craving. I'm going to fix it. But aversion, dosa, dosa, dosa-flavored obsession, aversion-flavored obsession is something so important and actually so challenging to embrace. But, you know, if you think about whenever any time we are lost in aversion, it is not a thoughtless realm, is it? It is so busy. It is so busy because aversion is like craving a huge storyteller. You know, someone annoys you or you annoy yourself or something annoys you that's going on here. Think of the stories we tell about it. Because we're really trying to explain our aversion to ourselves. More and more we're actually trying to justify our aversion. You know, And then we don't call it aversion anymore. We're just saying, I'm just being helpful here. I'm pointing out what's wrong. You know, other people have aversion. I, I'm just helpful. <laughs> it's one of the part of the deluding aspects of aversion. But again, it is so, so agitated and so painful. You know, when the Buddha talked about the liberation of the heart in this practice, he really spoke about, really on some very essential level, the liberation of the heart from aversion and ill will. And this is not about suppressing it, it's not about judging it, it's not about pretending it's not there. The Buddha actually put out there as a possibility, the genuine possibility of uprooting aversion radically alters our relationship to the world radically alters our relationship to ourselves and all all beings now it's it is actually i think very helpful although it's not particularly a pleasant task to embrace the pattern of aversion to really look underneath, you know, whenever you have one of those waterfalls of thinking that's, you know, kind of complaining or griping, you know, or miserable about this, that, or the other, really look underneath to really sense the landscape of aversion in the body, in the mind. What does it feel like? What does it feel like? To acknowledge again, not with judgment, but with compassion, the painfulness of it. The other, and the third of the underlying tendencies the Buddha spoke about is fear. Fear, anxiety. An underlying tendency that produces storms of thinking. Sometimes it's just a little anxiety or worry. Sometimes it's absolute, you know, a real sense of terror. Sometimes it's the fear of failure, the fear of being judged. The fear of pain is a classic one in meditation. You know, that, and, and it's such a microcosmic view of our world, uh, our relationship to pain in the body. How fear can just hijack, hijack and kidnap, you know, any sense of calm, any sense of spaciousness, how contracted it is. If there's a pain in the body, how the mind begins to kind of formulate around it, speculate, imagine, um, dread, anticipate. And yet, what is happening in that? We've actually lost touch with the body. 
We've actually lost touch with the person in front of us who we may be afraid of. We've lost touch with ourselves in that fear of, of you know, of, of, of failure, the fear of not being good enough. It is really important to sense the kind of streams, the flavors of these patterns as they move through our day, the little ones, the big ones, to really have a sense of embracing them. The fourth of the underlying tendencies that the Buddha talks about that generates obsession, generates these circles, is the territory of views and opinions. I know. You know, I know. I'm right. Well, for me to be right, something else generally has to be wrong. You know, I know. This is the way things are. I, I know it. You know, this is how things actually are. You know, somebody, you know, it happens very many times on retreats when there's a lot of new people and they come in and everybody's silent and often looks completely grim. You know, the people come to me and say, well, everybody's depressed here. And I said, I don't actually think that might not be true. No, it is true. Everybody is depressed here. A person could have 50 people come in and say, I'm actually not depressed, I'm having a good time. They'll say, no, no, you're depressed. I know, I know, look at it. it, It's this kind of unflinching world view, you know, about how things are. And it creates a lot of thinking and a lot of disconnection because we really see whenever we get into that place of I know how there is a cessation of learning a cessation, a closing off to any kind of new information that might actually challenge our views and opinions because we actually don't want to shift them. They're places of a kind of refuge, even though it's a false refuge. It feels like a place of refuge to say, I know. Really looking at when the mind is kind of circulating around views and opinions in the day. You know, I know who you are. I know what kind of person you are. I know who I am. You know, I know about the world. Really, whenever you see the mind starting to move into those kind of concrete places of solidity, turn it around. Do I know this? Do I know this? How do I know this? really see that kind of underlying pattern that generates so much obsession. Now the fifth of these underlying tendencies, and I think this one is kind of like the forerunner of all the others. So if you can get this one, you probably take care of all the other ones too. It is obsession that is rooted around what in Pali is called mano, or view of self often actually really translated as conceit of self. The I am notion. Now, this is the most well-defended fortress in the whole of our lives. You know, the I am view. It is the forerunner of, you know, if you think of it, so much of our our, uh, ongoing agitated endeavors to uh, rearrange and manipulate the world to support I am. If you really see how central that underlying tendency is, you really see how it is worth examining. Part of that underlying tendency of mano or I am is about the story about ourselves. You know, I'm good, I'm bad, I'm doing well, I'm doing terribly, you know, I'm getting somewhere, I'm not getting somewhere, you know, I'm acceptable, I'm not acceptable. Think about all of the self-stories, the self-telling stories 
we go through in a single day, how we are, strangely, you know, we do actually imagine ourselves to be at the center of the universe. Um, but how we are always referencing the moment in relationship to me, the position of I am in that moment. Now, this is actually probably the kind of primary underlying tendency that generates anxiety, generates craving, generates aversion, generates view, the I am. Now, the great, I think, the wonderful liberation of this teaching is, is so, I find it so happiness-making, is that we actually take that from into a verb form. We take self into a verb form. So we completely challenge this sense of I am, and instead to notice there are moments of selfing in the day. Selfing in the day. The self appearing in different forms, different guises, different appearances in relationship to other conditions. There is no sense of I am outside of conditions. So, you know, an angry thought arises, I'm angry. You know, a happy thought arises, I'm happy. You know, anxious thought arises, I'm sad. Instead, what we're doing in that moment is there is a sense of selfing. Selfing, a verb, a process. So right from the get-go, the Buddha challenges us any idea of this being center of the universe. And he never actually pauses. But yeah, she says, really look at this process of selfing as one event arising in relationship to other events. This fluidity of events arising and passing in a day, countless different shapes, countless different forms. If we concede that, we take the whole thing much less personally. This is an event, in fact, selfing and actually identifying or clinging are words that are used interchangeably. Because selfing is that process of contracting around events. And the Buddha constantly encouraged us to question this I am. It is the whole essence of the teaching of anatta, of uh, non-self, to see that there is no abiding self, rather a process that is arising and passing in relationship to different events through the day. To see this so clearly is actually to take yourself out of the center of the universe. That can be both terrifying and, I think, liberating in the same moment. In fact, the questions that the Buddha often encouraged people to bring, that whenever there was the awareness of a moment of contractedness, a moment of selfing, the Buddha really encouraged this reflection of, this is not me, this does not belong to me, this is not who I am. In the face of a thought, in the face of an emotion, in the face of a mental state, in the face of a memory, in the face of an Im- image, this is not me, this does not belong to me, this is not who I am. If we can do that, you really see, when we can switch into investigation rather than belief, it is a very big shift in what we are feeding. You're no longer feeding the agitation. We're actually feeding the willingness to understand, to explore. It is a huge shift in what is being fed to be able to shift over into this questioning rather than belief and rather than being propelled. 
Now, Papanchan obsession, I think we can acknowledge, it is agitation and it leads to agitation. So one of the first jobs of practice is, as we know, to calm the agitation. To calm the agitation in our bodies. It's one step. To calm the agitation in our sense doors. How they are interacting with the world. To calm the agitation in the mind. Not to be feeding the obsession. To withdraw, in a sense, the consent. To calm the agitation in the mind. To cultivate, actually, some restraint around obsession. Calmness is one step in liberating the heart from obsession. But the second step is certainly insight. Really, really understanding. Not being so easily deceived by thought. Being able to see a thought as a thought rather than a description of how things are. A thought as a thought not a description of reality, to really cultivate that willingness to see because thinking so propels these underlying tendencies, being mindful of that. When we're pushed by these underlying tendencies, the endless thinking that is generated feeds the underlying tendencies, so we walk in circles. But it's also important in terms of insight to see how much clinging and identifying and selfing really supports papancha, really sustains obsession. So in a way, in terms of insight, we really go right to the heart of the obsessive mind, right to the heart of the repetitive mind, to really look at what is actually sustaining this. And we see the clinging to I am, which then clings to thoughts, views, etc. Calming the agitation, calming the obsession is the first step in allowing us to see what underlies it. Seeing what underlies the obsession is the doorway to stepping out of the circle It's our map, it's our compass, it's what rescues us from being lost in the wilderness. It is actually the path, as the Buddha described, it's the path to liberating the heart. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.